0: Well, welcome back to the Trinity Podcast. These are our midweek episodes in which we're reflecting a little bit on what we've been learning on the weekend and continuing to meditate on what that means for our lives, how we continue to live uh, in light of God's story. And we have Dr. John Walton back with us uh, to continue to help us dive into uh, this book. So, John, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Always good to be here.
0: For today's episode, I want to tackle at least what I consider one of the stickiest sections of the book of Exodus, and that is the plague narratives. And I call it a sticky section because before I came to faith, this was kind of one of those many stories that I would look at um, and say, this just shows God is, a, is an angry, you know, vengeful, spiteful deity, and, and I don't wanna have anything to do with that. Um, and, uh, and likewise, I think that that continues to be a challenge for many people when they're reading the plague narratives. Likewise, though, they also make for great cinema. uh, A lot of the movies uh, that we have with uh, the Exodus story, these take up a a big chunk of the film, uh, probably because they make for some great special effects. Um, I would love to know from you your thoughts on how do we approach reading uh, specifically the plague narratives? And maybe what are some of the assumptions that we need to address and call out before we study them?
1: Of course, that's a great question, Nick, and it's one that's, uh, that occurs to lots of Bible readers who struggle with these. And uh, so thinking through them is not always an easy thing to do. First of all, I don't know that it's very appropriate to get upset with God for being angry. Mm-hmm. You know, there are good reasons to be angry. Um, we're all angry about human trafficking and sex trafficking and those kinds of things in our world. And that's right to be angry about those. It's interesting, I find that some people will look at the world around us today and say, why doesn't God do anything about this? Mm -hmm. And then when we read stories about him doing something about this, we complain that he's an angry, mean God. (laughs) And so I find that just uh, a little bit ironic uh, that that's the way it is. You know, another aspect of this is that we are seeing the events through the lens as Israel has remembered it. Mm -hmm. And we all shape our memories in particular ways that have to do with the cultures in which we live. So we read these texts and uh, we're often interested in trying to reconstruct the events and reconstruct the reasoning and reconstruct the scenarios. And the texts really aren't set up to help us do that these stories have been refracted through generations of perspectives as they think about their history. So again, I think that it's not quite appropriate to try to be complaining about all of this. One of the things
0: that I've uh, come across several times reading different commentaries on uh, the plague narratives, um, helping us to try and understand it in the context of the, the larger narrative is uh, I've I've seen a couple commentators refer to the fact that in uh, Exodus chapter 5, these plague narratives almost seem to be an answer to a question, and it's the question that Pharaoh asks Moses. Moses comes and says, this is what Yahweh says, let my people go that they might worship me. And Pharaoh's reaction is, who is Yahweh Mm -hmm. that I should obey him, that Mm -hmm. I should listen to him? And so... Is that a fair reading of that? Is that an appropriate way to start to frame at least the plague narratives as a response to that question? And if if it is, what is the response telling
1: us? (laughs) No, I think that's a fair way to look at it. Just as the book of Exodus is about Israel's identity, uh, it's also about Yahweh's identity, uh, about what kind of God he is uh, in comparison to the gods as they thought about them in the ancient world. And so again, we can see here not just... Um, The answer is not, oh, his name is, (laughs) you know, the answer is God acting on behalf of his people. And so in that sense, this is about power, divine power, not human political power. It's about divine power. Uh, So Yahweh against the gods of Egypt. It's about divine identity. How is Yahweh different from the gods of Egypt? And how is Yahweh the god of his people? And so in that sense, it gives a a lot of different perspectives to think about as Israel comes into this um, awareness of who God is, how powerful he is and what he's willing to do on their behalf.
0: One of the things that I've sometimes seen is um, people really trying to analyze the significance of each individual plague. Um, Is that an appropriate approach to take? And if so, uh, what is the significance of some of those or is it better to see it kind of as a whole and and what is kind of the collective um, Impression we walk away f- with uh, Having looked at the at the narratives
1: as, as kind of a unit Well, some people have tried to attach each plague to one of the specific gods of Egypt mm-hmm. I'm not sure how well that works. I mean you can make connections with lots of them uh, but some of them it's kind of a stretch uh, to, to do that but certainly overall the, uh, the idea is that Yahweh's power is far more than the gods of Egypt. They are powerless to stop these things. They are powerless to answer prayers for relief, things of that sort. And so in that sense, it does address the gods of Egypt, but I'm not sure we can do a one-to-one correspondence on that. It also addresses uh, some of the key uh, ideas of a, a country's flourishing. Obviously, these these plagues absolutely ruined the economy of Egypt, not just in the immediate near term, but also in the far term uh, as their cattle died and their crops died and just everything was was ruined. And so in that sense, uh, this is also showing power against the country and ruining the country that has sought to flourish on the backs of Israelite slavery. Mm-hmm. And so it has those elements. It certainly has a political element to it as it shows God's power over Pharaoh. Um, so all of these things are interconnected. But I think for the most part, it's, it's most appropriate to think of the whole series together and what it's accomplishing. So the, the end of the
0: sequence, you know, we have the really the last two uh, plagues or signs, you have the, the plague of darkness and then the death of the firstborn. Um, certainly the last one, I think, is a sticking point for a lot of modern people. You know, uh, how could, you know, God do this and kill all these, you know, all the firstborn of, of the land of Egypt? What, what um, insight would you provide into why is that the last one? What do we need to understand about that? How do we approach it? Because it it does seem quite devastating um, that it strikes not just to the house of Pharaoh, but to the households of of this country um, in a very, no longer macro and economic way, but even now a much more personal and familial way. Uh, What's significant about that being kind of the last
1: move? It really is a move against, it's an action against the families in Egypt because family power, family leadership passed to the oldest son. So it's connected to those sorts of things. It's undermining then the authority uh, that's resident not just in the government, but in the families themselves. I think we also have to be aware that um, the text tends to speak very universally on all of these plagues. Um, And so all the firstborn children, uh, but universal language in huge catastrophes like this tends to be rhetorical in nature. Um, So I don't know what that means for what actually happened. Um, What happened represents the idea of a strike against Egypt's firstborn sons. Uh, But I don't know that I would say that this means that in every household, this is how it was. Maybe it was, I don't know, but I know that universal language is used rhetorically like that. Just like it says, all the world came to Joseph for food. Well, not everybody came (laughs) across the oceans or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so we just have to be careful to recognize that that language can be rhetorical in these uh, catastrophe kinds of settings. This
0: is also the 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 plague in which God provides um, kind of a a means of escape, we find him offering them the Passover. What is the significance of the Passover in the Exodus story? And what is it about him giving that gift now, this, this, uh, this, uh, this
1: provision now in the narratives? Well, at one level, it links to the idea that Israel's firstborn sons belong to him. And in one sense that they're forfeit, but not their lives, rather their dedication and commitment. But I think also we find some very interesting things. The very fact that it's called Passover. Uh, Passover is a traditional English translation of the Hebrew term Pesach. And when you look at that word carefully, it doesn't mean to jump over or leap over or skip over something. Okay. But it really is a word that talks about guarding or protecting. Hmm. And what that means is that the text in Exodus 12 portrays Yahweh as passing through the land with the destroying angel, two of them together. And it says that when they get the door with the blood on it, Yahweh will Pesach the door. He'll block the door Hmm. so that the destroying angel does not enter. And that's why the blood is on the doorposts and the lintel because that's preparing for Yahweh's presence to block the door. And so this speaks of the salvation, the deliverance of Israel's firstborn sons and shows the the role of the blood there to prepare for the presence of of Yahweh. So in some of the other plague
0: narratives we see God Already making a distinction between, you know, the Israelites and the Egyptians. That in some of the plagues, it's, it says that, like the plague of darkness, for example, it was dark; the Egyptians couldn't see anything. But in the land of Goshen, there was light where the Israelites dwelled. This is the one where they have to do something, though, to get that distinction made, which is, you know, to actually kill a lamb and, you know, uh, anoint their doors with with its blood. What is the significance of that? Is there any significance or am I reading too much into the text you know, to see something different there where God is no longer, doesn't seem to any longer make a distinction without this step being taken?
1: I think it's mostly to do with the nature of that particular plague. That that's something that did call for Israelite action in order to recognize what was happening and that they had to play a role in that. You know, you take something like the darkness, and most people can generally assume that that's a dust storm. And dust storms can be localized. And so the fact that Israel, where they lived, didn't have it, and that it came through where the main population of Egypt was would make some sense with that. It certainly wouldn't be that an Egyptian and an Israelite living next to each other, that the one would have the dust storm and the other would not. Mm-hmm. So it talks about regions of the country. Um, But again, all of those have different things to convey. Uh, Sometimes it was conveyed just by the fact that Israelites, by virtue of being Israelites, are not going to have the same problem. But then other times, as in the Tenth Plague, they had to do something.
0: We talked at the very beginning of kind of this midweek series about how Exodus reveals uh, who God is. God is telling his story throughout in addition to kind of the power motif, are there other things that we learn about Yahweh through the plague narratives that help us to have a fuller picture of him and of
1: his character? Well, certainly the idea that he's showing compassion on his people, Mm -hmm. they've been enslaved and he's going to deliver them from slavery so that he is acting on their behalf with compassion to bring about their deliverance. So it's interesting, Israel would have celebrated this event. And they did, of course, Passover. They celebrate this event as a great event of their deliverance and uh, God's mercy on them. And we as Bible readers too often turn it around and turn it into a tale of violence Mm -hmm. and cast accusations at God who, wait a minute, he delivered his people. And so it's interesting perspectives that, that can do that. And I think that we have to give the biblical text the credit um, of reading it in its own context. This is a quote by John Goldingay in a commentary uh, actually written on Joshua. He says, we tend to assume that our modern values are enlightened ones, and we consequently read the Bible with the assumption that we are in a position to evaluate it in light of our values. And then we use the results of our study to reinforce those values. And Goldingay suggests that ethically, we owe these texts a reading that seeks to understand them in their own terms and within their own framework.
0: I think that's such a helpful, um, you know, corrective and caution for us is to really consider uh, who this text was written for and written to, that it is Israel's story. Uh, And this idea that we're talking about a people group that has been enslaved and impressed under this system and under this regime. And so when you start to think about it from that perspective, it really does start to shift maybe what the emphasis actually is uh, in the text. I think that that's something hard for us as modern readers to do. I know that one of the the objections that often comes up is Pharaoh's role in all of this. Uh, We have passages in Exodus where it says, you know, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and but then other passages, God hardened his heart. And I know people are just like, well, which one is it? And is he really responsible? Or is this all kind of fall at at God's feet? And I wonder if you might just kind of help us unpack that a little bit, that relationship between kind of Pharaoh's role in that, the hardening of his heart and God's role.
1: Um, You know, I think that the language in the text is variable on that. Pharaoh or God hardening the heart because in the end, it's a difference without a distinction. Okay. That is, God is involved in everything, and if Pharaoh's heart is hardened, um, they trying to distinguish whether Pharaoh did it or God did it is really not, not a significant difference. Um, the other thing to notice is that this really isn't a, isn't a question of free will for eternity. Um, is Pharaoh going to heaven or hell based on God, didn't give him a choice? And it, It's not that kind of story at all. Uh, This is about the idea that Pharaoh represents Egypt, and uh, he doesn't have any personal ramifications uh, for his own personal destiny, he's treated as Egypt. And so the plagues are against the gods and Pharaoh and the Egyptians, uh, all in a single complex, Mm -hmm. uh, corporate, collective uh, sense. So in in that way, we find that the Pharaoh hardening his heart or God hardening his heart, isn't that big a deal one way or the other. Uh, The fact is that this is how events are proceeding along for God to carry out his plans and purposes for Israel. One of the
0: things that I um, think is often missed as well is just how many opportunities I think God gives Pharaoh to respond as well. And we almost see a very kind of patient long suffering of God in the sense that he didn't have to send Moses with a warning at all. <laughs> and yet repeatedly there's this warning um, and this encouragement to relent. Um, but you also see just the steadfast purposes of God of I am going to work to deliver my people and bring them out from underneath this, this, this country and this system which really has broken them and, and bring them not just for the sake of their freedom, but bring them to
1: myself. Well, and I think that's a good observation. Uh, we look at the text, we say, God sent 10 plagues. Wait a minute. He gave them 10 chances. <laughs> yeah. You know, And we, again, look at the negative side instead of the positive side. Mm-hmm. 10 chances to turn things around and good motivation to do so. Right. And and yet they didn't.
0: Right. So as we think about just the reading of, of the plague narratives today, this was a question I asked you the first episode we had you on mm-hmm. is, um, what would you hope that that we as modern readers take away from that piece of the narrative? What would you hope that we would learn uh,
1: reading this portion of the story? Well, I think mostly, again, it's it, we should be asking the question, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about his plans and purposes? What do we understand about the purposes of the author and how he used the plagues to accomplish his purposes? And those are the kinds of questions we ought to be asking as we come to understand the text. So, What we learn about God, of course, is that he is a compassionate God who calls these oppressors to justice and actually gets engaged to act on the behalf of Israel. And so those are the things that we see in how God is doing what he does. Uh, We also see that he's a God who gave chances and those chances were repeatedly ignored. We can see his plans and purposes as Israel is brought out and made a nation under God uh, and in covenant with God. And so we get to see then how the author is developing these ideas of relationship and presence as they're growing, as God is showing himself to be working on behalf of Israel with the goal of living among them.
0: Well, thank you for helping us really address a particularly difficult part in the Exodus story and uh, just reflect a little bit on how we can better read it. Um, so I hope that that's encouraging to those who are gonna be uh, reading their way through the text. And I look forward to continuing our conversation with you as we move into the, the tabernacle portion of the story. So thank you, John. Great welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on the Trinity Podcast. We hope this week's message encouraged you to consider the claims of Jesus in a new way, and we would love to have you join us for worship on the weekend. To find a location near you, visit www.tlc4u.org.